grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. Great day, wonderful weather. We're coming out of the heat. I'm so excited about it. Oh, my, you have no idea. Well, maybe you do if you live in Arizona. I haven't had air conditioning, so this is the only room that... Um, let me flip, flip this up here. This is the only room that I've had air conditioning all summer, so I've been kind of stuck in here all season. But uh, today was 90 degrees, and it's coming down. We reached the peak, and tomorrow's 82 and that is the end. That is the end. The highest it's going to get next week is 81. The lowest it's going to get is 68 degrees. It's Fahrenheit, guys, for for everyone over in Europe. But I'm really excited about that because, boy, there have been some hot days all summer. Anyway, welcome to the show. We're back on our regular schedule show-wise. We've got a great guest tonight. My name is Charlotte, and I am... Let me get in the chat room here. My name is Charlotte, and I am going to be your host for the next hour. And I own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. Let me move over a little bit. California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. The radio website, this show website, is www.californiahauntsradio.com. And you can find all our shows on there and stuff. Our show is going back for two years. Anyhow, we've got a great guest tonight. I'm hoping I'm saying his name right. You guys know how I am. I'm horrible with names, but I believe I, be, I believe it's Tomas Prower. Tomas has written some, some very interesting books about magic, and I want to let him explain what they are because he's, he's going to be 100% better at it than I am. So anyway, without further ado, let me bring Tomas in. Hello. Ah, hello. Hello. How are you today? I hear you had thunderstorms. As you can see, I'm using my backup computer from all the pixelation. It is insane. I mean, thunder where you can feel it. Here in LA, it's like, was that an earthquake? No. You, it's ridiculous. So we're, we're making do, but it's wild. I've never known LA to have thunder like that. It usually doesn't, which is why it's so extra wild right now. Cool. Well, that's cool. At least you guys will get some water, too. That's that's something we've needed for certain. <laughs> I think everybody does at this point. Tell tell everybody about yourself, sir. I am Tomas Brower. Um I'm a writer of mostly mystical books that travel around the world and explore the deep, fascinating subcultures that the world has hidden from the majority view. And I try to bring them to life and bring them to light in a way that... It's not too academic textbook. It's fun to read something you want to read. And you realize how interconnected we are because those mystic, spooky, ooky rituals that other people do, we kind of do it too. We just do it in a different way. So it's mm -hmm. making the world a better place through multicultural magic and knowledge. And you've written a book called Queer Magic. Can you tell me about that? I have. Queer Magic is really, again, that around the world focus throughout history, right. people trying to find out what was queerness like in 
days gone by, not in a history mm-hmm. sense, but in the religions, in the spiritualities, in the cultures. Were they priests and priestesses? How was different genders realized? What about the gods and goddesses? What are the spiritual and magical powers that queer people were believed to have in cultures throughout the world? So that book really focuses in every continent, every place. What were the magical powers of queer people? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Yes, um, it's. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I got you covered. <laughs> that was really good. I was surprised. So, t- I was like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I know you traveled around the world. Um, so uh, t- tell me about that. I'm curious. Um, I used to briefly work for the French government as a essentially a cultural liaison, which is really. I'd like to call it a marketing spy. That's the fun mm-hmm. way to say it. Where I live in different places around the world and I study covertly how people live. What are people buying? What are the trends? What are the economic policies? Because when people try to do it from outside in, you know, what is market research? It's cold. It's not authentic. But if I can make friends, authentic friends with people and find out what is trending, what's the next trend that France needs to capitalize on? Mm-hmm. It would be like living in Japan and realizing, oh, this Pokemon thing sounds like it'll be really big. We should get on that before it hits. And that's what I did, really living amongst different peoples and trying to predict the culture and where it's going based on how it is now in the past. That's been my life for a good portion of it. Very interesting. And how did you start writing these books then? Oh, that's the thing I always wanted to do since I was very young. Um, I wrote my first what I call quote unquote book, which was Power Ranger fan fiction when I was like five or six. Because mm-hmm. I was so excited and the show ended after 30 minutes and I wanted more adventures. So I wrote, you know, the Yellow Ranger fought this person on my own. But I don't know. I've always been a storyteller at heart and I really enjoy that part it's it's what i wanted to do and i realized that oh, i had a near-death experience where i was certain i was going to die and without getting too heavy it was when you know you're, you have maybe a month to live you reflect mm-hmm. on a lot of different things and you try to think oh what a waste why did i never do this and that and i thought about that why did i never write the book i've loved it why did i never actually do it so i sat mm-hmm. down did it. And that was a book called La Santa Muerte, um, all about La Santa Muerte's magic and her cult sure. around the world. And then wow. that took off. And once that took off, I kind of got a carte blanche to write, you know, you write successful books that people buy, do it again. So I got <laughs> like, what do you want to talk about this time, Tomas? I was like, you know, uh, my other side of me is the queerness that I'm fascinated by. And I don't see anything about any similar books out there? Where is our history in the magical realm? We get the academicness, you know, we know Greek society, but what else? So I did that because, you know, if it's not there, you got to make it there. Right. And that was the inspiration of that. So um, how were you able to do the research into this? It's a mix of having a lot of contacts around the world from my travels, which is very helpful. Um, a lot of this stuff is really just stuff that I would research on my own. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. one of the person people who loves getting lost in Wikipedia articles and like click on the next thing, the next thing <laughs> and just do my own study. And from college, I would say maybe controversial college is pointless, but anything you can learn in college, you can learn online for free. 
what it does do is it opens your mind to new experiences, new people, and it teaches you how to research. It teaches you how to find factual information and present it well. So that having access to all those academic documents via my, you know, college access ship, that helped a lot too. And those three things combined together, the network of people, the academic sources I had access to, and just loving reading about it my whole life mixed mm -hmm. together perfectly. So tell me about the book then. Ooh, queer magic. Um, <laughs> it, it's so hard. It's like, it's like you know, you're you're. It's like your children, where it's like, oh, how do I describe the? I love everything about them, but how would they love them? Um, I think queer magic is probably. It's it's a long overview into the world of, all around the world from ancient history, from days you know the caveman days. Mm -hmm. up until now and how different people how queerness has existed because a lot of history gets rewritten and one example i have of what a good example of queer magic is is that during the big victorian era um mummy excavations in ancient egypt archaeology they found this big tomb a sanctum hidden underground and they saw all these images and murals on the sanctum walls of the innermost tomb and it was two men um you know nose rubbing which is the right Egyptian right right Right. And they were there and then they found a sarcophagus and there were two male skeletons in it, you know, in an embrace. And immediately the answer was, which got recorded for all of history and recorded in history books is look at these conjoined twins that died together <laughs> or or something ridiculous like, oh, they're just really good friends. They're just good friends. So a lot of the history that we have, it's not accurate. You know, the samurai of Japan had intricate rituals about same sex relationships you have trans transgender um, warriors in sub-saharan africa who get erased with their queerness and this book really goes through every culture around the world every spirituality and tries to de-erase what has been erased it doesn't bring anything new up it's what we know as of right now but look they weren't really friends they mm -hmm. were lovers this person was believed to have magical powers because they transcended the binary between man and woman and society didn't know what to make of them. So they have probably had magical powers. And it's that examination around the world that queer magic does. Well, when I think of this, I think of, um, I think of ancient Rome. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, ancient Greece and Rome are really popular because a lot of times that's the only kind of authorized teaching of there was once queerness that existed. It's like ancient mm -hmm. Greece and Rome disappeared and then the 1970s happened. It's like, well, what about everything else in between? Um, but ancient Rome is good. The interesting thing about Greece and Rome is that, which is where everything gets super fascinating, mm -hmm. is that the way we think of queerness isn't the way it's always been thought of around the world, um, historically and even now. So when you talk about ancient Greece and Rome, queerness and you know being gay was a verb it's not something that you were you can you don't say i am gay i am queer it's just something that you did it's like mm -hmm. eating it's like i am not eating i eat it's what i do so the whole idea of what is queerness was not an identity fixture it was just mm -hmm. something that you did which in a way made it more acceptable because it wasn't associated with you but then you know they had which still exists today they had these bizarre rulings of you know well if you're the if you're the top penetrator then you're still a man if you're oh. a bottom gets penetrated then you're like a woman and of course being a woman is the worst thing you could possibly be uh -huh. and women they're essentially property 
so not much is written on them. It'd be like writing, what was the history of this chair that existed? They, did, they didn't see them as like people. Mm -hmm. So the whole rabbit hole gets fascinating for ancient Rome of just, what is queerness if it's not an identity, but only a verb that you do? Mm -hmm. And it's based on how you perform that verb defines what it is that you are and are not. It's a real different world, but it was really interesting to look into. It should be. I, I kind of thought it might be because to me it was more accepted back then. You know, until yeah. it got accepted like in the, in recent times here in this area, but it was a lot more accepted back then. It was. It was. I know it. They kind of got it a little bit from the ancient Greeks, and ancient Greece was very accepted. But ancient Greek society, men and women never associated together outside the home. Mm -hmm. So when you only live in a society that's forever only people of your same sex that you interact with to be your friends, your best friends, your enemies, your lovers, lovers naturally comes apart. I mean, people get desires. But in Rome does the same thing. Rome was a little bit more authoritative mm -hmm. <laughs> in a lot of aspects that ancient Greece. But ancient Rome, um, again, as long as you were, as long as you did masculine, quote unquote masculine things, it was okay. If not, then you were a woman, which, you know, God, God forbid, you right. be a woman. And even in uh, Pompeii, when, you know, they unearthed it from the Mount Vesuvius eruptions, there's still graffiti found of like super offensive um saying i forget what they are exactly right now but it was just, it would be essentially saying like look at this queer person so and so took it up the butt they are bad oh they're not really a man just like you know same derogatory stuff we deal with every day uh -huh. mortalized in pompeii graffiti i mean it was we haven't changed much <laughs> well i used to collect um ancient greek and roman antiquities <laughs> very nice and a lot of it when you're it, this wasn't museum quality stuff i mean it was just stuff that was that would have gone to a museum except it had like a mark on it you know that kind of thing i was um, getting so they were there was cut price but i still have stuff but a lot of phallic symbols yes i, I you know modern modern united states especially because of our you know the, you know, the pilgrims or the people right. who were too much of a prude for even prudish era england that they had to get kicked out and find somewhere else where they could be extra prude Mm -hmm. That's what that's what the U.S. is founded upon: super prudish Protestantism, and people were just okay with human sexuality. They accepted it as a natural part. You know, mm -hmm. you know surprise! You know, men have penises. It's ta-da! It's a, it's a thing that exists. So, but yeah, and that's also a symbol of power, especially because ancient um, Rome was very um, a cult of masculinity, a cult of martial worship and war. So to be a man was the ultimate glory and honor. And of course, to be a man, to have some sort of, you know, symbol that could symbolize things of manhood, right. what could it be, you know? Oh, well, obviously they have a phallic symbol. And to them, it wasn't, you know, evil. It wasn't, you know, taboo. It was just, no. that represents a man. That is good. That probably has magical powers. That's probably why women are like this, you know? It's just <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... In my collections, I know I've ended up with rings with, with that symbol on there. I've ended up with, ne with necklaces. I mean, it was a really big thing. Really big thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. People today, you know, they, they clutch their pearls if they saw that. Like, oh, you would give that? How <laughs> offensive. But to ancient Rome, it was like, here's this symbol of power I am giving you. So, different times. Uh, when you talk about queer magic, I mean, when I read the book, that comes to mind, like, 
people casting spells, but that's not really what it's about, right? That's not the focus, but there is okay. that in there. Because sure. in order to, in order to make um, sure this worldwide community book was a worldwide community, <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, yeah, it wasn't just me spouting off. This is what this culture was like. <laughs> what these people did, right? Um, no, there's actual people I've contacted around the world who I was like, okay, you are a queer, you're in this culture. Right. In your spirituality, how do you worship? How do you do this? How do you exist? Mm -hmm. And a lot of cultures have magic, whether it be spells, prayers, rituals. And they say, could I put this queer love spell in there that I use? Fantastic. Do it. Could I put this prayer, this meditation, this whatever in there? So the book has its fair share of magic. Sure. We don't do that. But right. the community contributors around the world, um, whatever their magic is in their spirituality, it's all there, too. Well, I would think it makes sense. I mean... You get, you know, people casting love spells and stuff all the time, so why not, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and it's been around for a very, very long time. I mean, human desire is human desire, and we find ways of trying to achieve it. So, um, when, when you would talk to people, like, in different countries about this, did you find they were more open about it, or, or you know, what countries seem to be more closed, uh, you know, the United States, obviously, up until a few years ago, but what countries did se seem to be the most closed about it that didn't want to have discussions? Here's the, here's the controversy. Um, a lot of what we would call developing nations were very uh -huh. against it. So mostly sub-Saharan Africa was very against it. Um, um, Middle Eastern cultures is very against it, yes. which is odd because historically, if you, you know, you read the book, those communities, those cultures were very for it, very okay. Then colonialism happened when Europe was in one of its very prudish phases, you know, right. very severe Christianity. And they said, no, no, you got to do it like this. That is evil. This is how it is. So when, so now it's reversed. So now all those, you know, quote unquote, Christian nations or Western monotheistic nations, they're like, oh, okay, that was probably bad in the past. It's not like that anymore. We mm -hmm. accept queerness. But from years of colonization, it's just been ingrained in a lot of other cultures. I remember I was talking with someone in um, one of the sub-Saharan African countries, and they said, oh, queerness never existed here. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, we're going to have an honest discussion. You don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be okay. But it, it existed everywhere. And they're like, no, it didn't. And I'm like, okay, show me some academic material, something I can trust that says and corroborates with what you're saying, and then I'll believe you. So they said it's in the Bible. So let, 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 let's deconstruct this for a second. This person is saying their authentic pre-Christian culture has no Christian, has no queerness in it because the Christian Bible says there is no queerness that existed in this culture mm -hmm. that never had Christianity. Mm -hmm. it, it's a weird mental gymnastics that people have been just ingrained into. And that was a lot of problems. And a lot of people who just the very evangelized um peoples of developing nations who say queerness never existed because they just they don't know any different and all that sure. all the you know a lot more things are illegal there um both action wise and information wise so they mm -hmm. have no books saying of what their history is they have books that are written by you know the theocracies in charge so you can't blame them but it is odd that the countries and peoples that were most accepting of it historically are now least accepting of it it, it was bizarre. I think it's just the way it went. You know, more of the men, I'm going to say men, you know, but more of the men took, 
as they came into power. I mean, the Taliban are a perfect example. I'm not gonna. I got a lot of. I got. I got a lot of uh, Mid East fans, so I'm gonna like you know. But uh, you know, the, like like oh, well, you know, the Taliban. It's just, it's just the way they believe over there. You know, it's just it's just the way they've ended up believing. But you know, you got to think. And you know, we talk about coming out of the closet, but you got to think about this when Catholicism was young back in the you know back in the day what were they doing they were hiding in basements they, they were hiding underground they were hiding in closets you know pra- practicing that so maybe that's what's going on in in these countries that that keep saying oh no you know we don't go for that it's true and uh the book queer magic does go into um how early christianity was very queer accepting because you mm-hmm. know when you're hiding in closets and being fed to lions you're not in you're that small of a power you don't say no to allies and people who are wanting to join your club. It right. was only when they became a position of power that you could be more selective. Of, oh, no, we're okay. We don't need you anymore. But, you know, that's very, it's very true because it's not safe for a lot of people. And, again, they're just not taught that. So, And they have no, you know, Internet access is limited. You can't go on certain sure. sites. So right. If you're never taught it and you're taught that this is the history and you have no way, no people to tell you differently no access to find it differently you believe what you're told sure absolutely so what do you think is the most open country for, for that sort of thing oh um i would definitely say the most open countries to queerness and sexuality are probably a lot of the nordic countries of scandinavia they're very open oh. to it um, even re-examining the past, their um, Viking Age past, and putting mm-hmm. that into perspective, because that was that gets a whole lot of mishigas of a lot of stuff. But um, and a lot of um, Latin American nations are very okay with it too. Um, Argentina, especially, they're they've always been on the cutting edge of you know LGBT plus rights and legalizing things. And even the president now, um, the socialist president Fernandez. He, um, his son is a famous drag queen who uh, does anime style drag and he loves them. You know, they, they're on the campaign train together. So Nordic countries, Latin America, especially Argentina, um, they're very open to it. What do you think have, um, has been the turning point to cause people to be more, you know, in the modern times, to be more um, open to it or accepting? Uh, I you know who knows but two uh-huh. things i think are um one people have gotten people have been more bold in admitting that they are you know a queer person uh-huh. um, even the the famous harvey milk campaign that got um a controversial proposition not passed that would have you know fire all queer teachers um it passed because not because the public was oh that's morally incorrect because the campaign is based on people telling their family, telling friends, telling employers, I am gay, I am a lesbian, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's different because a lot of families are like, well, that's okay, but only because I know so-and-so. It mm-hmm. could be, it, it goes with a lot of things, even race, racism. You know, if you grow up in a town where there's no black people, and then you say, oh, they do this, they're like that, you believe it because you have no anything else to really tell you otherwise mm-hmm. but if you grow up and you know oh no you know mr jenkins is our neighbor and he's very nice he's not like that then you question a lot more with the sexual revolution of like the 60s a lot more people were being open about themselves and suddenly 
queer people aren't them or those others. Right. They were your neighbor. They were your relative that you never knew about. They were this. And so it put a human face to it that um, people started being more accepted and open. The other thing is um, um, violence. Severe violence definitely helped because, again, no revolution, no nothing is successful without violence. Um, any social revolution that has passed, anything good, you know, whether it's from emancipating the slaves, uh -huh. the sexual revolution, trans women of color threw bricks at cops. That is what got us where we are. That is what got people starting to pay attention. Um, pleas to humanity don't work. The powers uh -huh. that be will never acquiesce power. And so finally, queer people got violent and they said, okay, we're not putting up with it anymore. Take this brick. We're going to hurt you economically. We're going to shut down your businesses and boycott you. And if you come for us, get ready because we're going to send you to the morgue. That got people thinking. Because suddenly it's not sure. like these people who you can push over anymore. It's, oh, there's right. going to be consequences for your actions. You know, fool around and find out. So the mix of justified violence and, of course, oh. just knowing your, knowing someone and putting a human face to it really helped recently. I also think, and I know this is probably stretching a little bit, but I also think some of these movies with drag queens have helped a lot because a lot some of these movies have been really popular with people. So, so people are more accepting. It is, and that's the thing because you have this media. I mean, in the early days before you know RuPaul's Drag Race, I mean, you had it was very rare. I mean, you had occasionally you know you had Divine do his John right. Waters movies and things like that, but again being exposed to it more you know you see mm -hmm. you know you kids today oh look at so and so and on drag race they're my favorite you have a human face to it you can mm -hmm. see it, you empathize with it it's not an other so by the media accepting it and putting you know more positive portrayals everyone who says that's evil it's like no no so and so just broke down in the workroom when they're sewing their dress because of this thing that i identify with and go with too they can't be bad so it's it's the exposure that really helps. I think it does. I was watching um, MTV the other night, just reruns of Catfish ah. on YouTube TV. Every commercial, I mean, every commercial is a gay couple, which I think is cool. It is. I mean, it. it the thing is, it sells. Yeah. It sells. And it's, you, once, once you can show that you are profitable, then people start accepting. I mean, even... Sure everything if even with politicians you have to show that mm -hmm. it's a safe vote mm -hmm. um and that's i mean when obama came in office he was very anti-queer he was very um i don't personally believe in that and i'm not going to put that through in my legislation sure. but then it started the, t the scale started tipping it's like oh no it's safe to promote this and he evolved on his ideas mm -hmm. and then he was the catalyst that really started pushing it and got it accepted so i think yeah, uh, you know, as far as like TV goes and stuff, I think Queer Eye had a lot to do with it too, because people really got into that program. Yes, because especially those you know home and garden, you know, do it yourself yeah. shows that appeals to a very middle class um, white suburban audience, which is mm -hmm. usually the audience that was very against it. Right. And suddenly, you had this specifically targeted show that was reached this audience exactly where they wanted it, and right. thought, oh no, these people are great. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it's that wonderful exposure of it. Did you have trouble, because um, I know we kind of talked about this before, but did, when you 
went out to talk to people about this book or, or wanted to, you know, get the views of some of these these people, did you have problems like getting them to, to say stuff at all? Um, no, it was, it was, you get the extremes. It's either, I don't want to be a part of this. So then you just mm -hmm. move on, no further discussions or it's yes, finally, you know, our, my culture has never been heard. Let me write this, you know, Polynesian queer Hawaiian dance ritual that we've had. <laughs> they have to, like, they get really excited to where it's like, they go off on their own and it's perfect. Or mm -hmm. they're so disgusted that they don't even want to talk to you anymore. So you get the extremes. It wasn't hard. Just wading through a lot of the no's and, you know, the mean messages. But once what's you find a, something you it. Well, what's a particular story uh, from the book that you remember that stands out? Um, the biggest one is um, in eastern Siberia, there's the Chuchki tribe. And it really impacted me because they have the shamans of their tribe. Um, you know, there's different variations of queerness. And, you know, if you are however you identify with the masculine traits, you have all the powers of the universe, you know, in masculinity, feminine, uh -huh. all the powers, femininity, but they have a special shaman, the non-binary shamans who refuse to like be man or woman or anything. Uh -huh. um, they're greatly feared. And I was like, what is this? Why? And it's because they have, they can transcend the powers of male and female. So they have all the powers beyond any other human could possibly have. So all the female shamans are scared of them. All the male shamans are scared of them. And all the everyday people are scared of them because they have access to unknown power, which was really cool. And then, you know, you look further into it and it explores it. And it's by not having a label, which really impacted me. Because when you say you are this, you are simultaneously signaling you are not everything that this isn't. Uh -huh. So... If you, but if you don't put any labels on yourself, then you are everything and anything, and you have no limits. And the shaman, the Chuchki shamans or the Chuchki people, they saw that as including spirituality and magic. So if you don't say you are this, then you have all the magical powers in the world that we don't even know exists yet. And I was like, not having labels and those that Chuchki lesson that was really powerful. So that 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 stays with me always. When you um, presented this book to the publisher, was was the did the publisher accept it with open arms, or did you have to fight to get the book produced? Oh no, the publisher Llewellyn was very very open to it. Um, Llewellyn, the publishing house is very um, neo pagan specific. Uh -huh. They magic with a lot of tarot decks that they do, um, but they were open to it. In fact, I pitched it. I pitched it while on a book tour in Northern California, I think San Jose at a convention at a cocktail party and my editor was there and I was just looking around and I just said, my God, this pagan convention, everyone, there's so much gayness. There's so much level of queerness in this people. And so I pitched it in a marketing way of like, we need a book that speaks to this people. It will absolutely sell. I mean, look, you know, I point with my martini in hand, look. <laughs> so, and she was like, you're right. I love it. I love that message. It'll sell. Um, when we all get back home, email me and we'll take it from there and we'll get it going. So they were very open to it because one, a, publishing is a business. You have right. to show that it can sell, but right. also they were very okay with the message and they loved it and were fully supportive. Fantastic. I have a question in the chat room. Uh, where did, where did he go to when he was putting together his research in the different countries? Was it the club scene? Um, 
No, it's it's a lot of the underground um, occult and uh, groups that kind of don't have official meeting places that are advertised that I get to know via um, my contacts. While writing the book, I didn't do too much actual traveling um, yeah. because I was sitting down writing. But I had been to many places and I had those contacts who were members of certain secret societies or members of certain things. And so I would ask them to essentially be my proxies to like, hey, remember this thing we talked about? Can you get me more information on that? And then mm -hmm. following that up with the academic research. So I didn't do much traveling, but um, it's no it's no different than any job hunting thing. It's all who you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Understand understandable. What was the best thing that happened to you after after you wrote the book? I mean, was it the reception you got on it? Was it you know you know monetary or, or what was the best thing? I think it was. One, it was two things. One of them was the critical um, acceptance of queer magic because I had written a previous book, the Santa Muerte one, and it was a big hit. Like it sold, but it was all poo-pooed by the critics. You know, the official academics, intelligentsia, the people writing the reviews. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, oh, the, we know it sells, but it's not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. I was like, whatever. But I write this book, and suddenly the you know it's like, oh. It's written so well. Oh, we love it. And it's a bit kind of like, well, you know, show you now. <laughs> it was a bit of the revenge thing. Like, yes, I can do it from a personal point of view. It's like when, you know, an actor struggles and they're told, oh, you can't act. Oh, look at this uh -huh. character actor. And then they win the Academy Award. And it's like, <laughs> looks like I was right all along. So on a cool. very pity, not pity, petty level, <laughs> the critical clay was wonderful. But the other, the bigger thing was just the acceptance by the people. I mean, I've... I've had people from all over the world reach out to me in messages and social media and so forth saying how it finally expanded their mind. I mean, what we were talking about earlier, like people having no access to certain books, right. they finally had this and they're like, there is something out there. I want to find out more. And just opening people's minds and just saying, oh, you know, I showed this to my friend or my family member who was previously unaccepting. Now they understand it more. They understand where it's coming from historically, where we've been, how we've always existed. And just the opening of minds and just people saying how it helped them really, really made it special. I've got a friend who um, writes gay romance novels. Ooh, very nice. I've he's actually a read good, a couple. Yeah, he's a really, he's, he's a really good writer. And uh, I, I've read a couple of them. You know, they're good books. And I'm looking forward to reading your book after this. Huh? I'm really looking forward to it. You know? Good. Get ready. It'll change your life forever. You'll never look at world or history the same way again. <laughs> uh, another question in the chat room. Does Tomas practice magic? Um, I do. Pro I'm probably not as magical as a lot of the other Llewellyn um, authors. Mm -hmm. But I guess hermeticism is probably what I do. I go into meditation... I do the the lesser banishing ritual for those who know what that is. If not, look it up. Um, so I I do basic stuff, but I would if I had to distill what I do, it's okay. a lot of um, I'm probably closest to Taoism, and just again without this turning to a whole conversation about Taoism and describing a whole religion, um, being just being in the flow of the universe, um, trying okay. to pick up on its natural vibes, and trying to realize where I'm purposely putting stumbling blocks and mentally creating the world through your thoughts and actions in a very, I would say, what the bleep do we know metaphysical way, quantum physics, uh -huh. 
that's probably the best way I can say it. So I'm very spiritual, magical, but I don't do too much, um, you know, draw ceremonial stuff. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, when you talk about uh, the different spells that 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 the queers will do, can you uh, go into detail about some of those. Oh yes, um, I know. There's definitely there's. I mean, it's the basic things a lot of people really want. Um, love. Mm -hmm. Everyone's looking for love. Well, how do queer people do this? And so there's some queer love spells, how to attract a same-sex lover, um, including if you're if you're trans or it's the whole shades of everything in between. Mm -hmm. um, there's protection spells because some people who contributed live in very um, places where it's not okay. And, you know, they had to use an alias for their name to put it. And it's the spells or safety rituals they do to put protection around them as mm -hmm. they just try to exist every day in society. Um, there's, you know, there's general empowerment, encouraging spells. So if I think one of them was how to empower a friend who's going through a hard time or how to get through the queerness. It runs the gamut of everything you find in um, the official magic books of spell and mm -hmm. occultism. Just picture that gay. Picture that queer like what about same sex what about living as a queer person right it's all the basics except queerified so it's all there very interesting very interesting what do you say to people that are afraid to come out of the closet it's tricky i'm, I'm a bit controversial in this because you know the the popular thing to say what everyone needs to say to not get banned on twitter is to say right. that you do you Mm -hmm. But what I will say from personal experience is that I remember those other campaign, like it gets better. Just hold on. It gets better. No, it does not get better. You get better and it gets better because you come into your own power. You accept yourself. And then the things that would perturb you or bother you don't anymore because you've grown stronger than that. So things don't get better if you stay in the closet. I understand that if you're economically tied to like parents or things or it's not safe to do so. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If there is no reason for you to be in the closet, I find it very self-disempowering. I find it not only, not only for yourself, but the community at large. Because again, right. if no one stood up and says, I am a queer person, I exist in the society, I want the same rights, mm -hmm. you would never know. And so I find it not helping the greater good, but I understand it's very difficult. I understand it's very different. So I can't pass judgment, but I would mm -hmm. say life gets better when you're out. And I know everyone says that, but it's not because of some magic. It's because you grow strong enough to be yourself. And when you're strong enough to be yourself, things just don't hurt you that much anymore. If it does, you can attack back a lot easier. How long did, how long did it take you to write the book? It took me nine months because that is exactly the time Llewellyn gave me to write the book. <laughs> so I know it was a whole baby gestation period. But thankfully, again, because, you know, I have been this is the stuff I read in my own time. I had the contacts. I had all been traveling. Um, it was a lot easier to make really quickly. But I only mm -hmm. had technically nine months to make it. Wow. Yeah. And I are see. you one of these people that when you write, you're you sit in front of the, the, the keyboard constantly or do you do it in spurts? I do it in spurts. I do it. I tend to write and put as much out until I'm just like, once it starts being a drag or it's just like, you start finding yourself being really distracted of like, oh. yeah, I stop because nothing, nothing good can come from that. There's nothing I can write. That'll be like fun. If I'm like bothered <laughs> by the whole process. So I do it in spurts. And then I try to do as much. I get energized. And I try to do as much as I can. 
before that goes away and then back and forth like that. That's how I do it. That's it. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. What makes you most proud about this book? I think the biggest pride thing is the fact that it, what a community effort it is. I mean, uh -huh. being able to get all these people from around the world to jump on and also contribute through authentic expression to have right. a big publishing company fully support it and to have it be so well, you know, not only respected, but loved and, you know, appreciated by the community and by people who are not in the community. Those all just came together to make me really proud that it's, it got done. Cause again, you know, there's no such thing as a self-made man. No one uh -huh. ever on their own and this was the help of you know me writing it yes the research but again people willing to show their stories a publishing company willing to put money behind it to market it and put it out there get it exposed and then just the average person even if you're in the closet click on buy on amazon going right. to the store and buying it in person you know just the bravery just to do that right so i'm proud right. of all those things Fantastic. Let's shift gears a little bit. To, you, you have two other books out. Uh, Morbid Magic is one of them. T tell me about Mor Morbid Magic. Oh, Morbid Magic is a real special book. I would say it was my favorite one to write. Mm -hmm. Because once, you know, once I had once I had double successes, you know, La Santa Muerte was big, Queer Magic was big. It's like, do it again. And you get more liberties to write because, you know, they, they trust you more. You're less of a gamble. So I... I was able to be very tongue in cheek. It's a lot more witty. It's a lot more fun and entertaining. But again, it's the same thing. It's that around the world, how do these people do it? But it's the focus on death and dying. So how do these people, okay. what did they believe was in the afterlife? What are the demons? What were their funeral rituals? Why did they do it? How did they overcome grief? What are the spells they give to their dead ancestors? What are the spells okay. to protect them from the other world? And what are the spells to get them through grief? Um, which was a personal project of mine because I've I got a previous life I had um, I'm, a, I'm a licensed mortuary professional and I used to work the night shift at a mortuary in uh, Los Angeles. Whoa. So not only do I know like the spiritual stuff, I know what human decomposition looks like. I've seen and helped families go through the process, hold their hand, pick out the casket, do the burial. So I've I've seen it from a very special point of view that I think a lot of people couldn't. Mm -hmm. And again, when I was working in the funeral industry, which is a whole conversation in and of itself, <laughs> um, again, I'll, I'll, here in the United States, you just have very, quote unquote, traditional, which is Judeo-Christian funerals. If you want anything that's not that, like especially like pagan people, we want to have this big ritual. Well, you can't because there's zoning permits or we as a funeral home don't know how to handle that. And we're not sure. going to accommodate your wishes because it's not economically incentive for us to do a one-time mm -hmm. thing so i was like well what, there has to be more than just what people know burial cremation and tradition and i wanted to expose people to all the ways there are in the world that people get over grief all the way that people go through the pain all the ways of everything else that's out there and more responsibilities because it really helps people to know that i don't have to do just this or that there's mm -hmm. all these different ways the world has seen it and continues to so Again, I pitched that to Llewellyn. They're like, that sounds great. Do it. Nine months. Boom. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could do a book in nine months. I'm jealous. Um, can you tell me about a, you know, a couple examples of, of maybe another country and how they deal with death? Sure. One of my favorite ones that I love, 
from the funeral director experience I've had is in the sure. Maori tribe, traditional Maoris in New Zealand. Um, let me preface this. If someone dies suddenly in our society, they become a saint. I mean, you could have a very racist, child abusing father who's a drunkard and left his family. Suddenly they die and it's like, oh no, he really loved me. It was just, he was just going through a hard time. He's really a good person. No, he wasn't. No. And you can't speak ill of the dead. Suddenly everyone mm -hmm. becomes magical. My father didn't really beat me because he was a bad person. He was trying to express his emotions in a certain unproductive way. No, no. Call a spade a spade. You can't do that in traditional funerals of our society. But traditional Maori, they had this big ceremony, which if you're familiar with Seinfeld, it's the airing of grievances during Festivus, where you go up and you say, this person was a liar and a cheat. Thank God they're dead. They are bad. They do not deserve our prayers and worship. Let them exist into oblivion. And I was like, thank God some culture is finally calling that out and not letting right. death suddenly beatify or wash over people's evils that they have done. Mm -hmm. It was one of the only societies I saw that did that. Because a lot of societies, especially traditional societies, when someone's dead and they're in the afterlife, they have magical powers. So even if dad was a bad person, you couldn't say it because he could supernaturally attack you. So you had to like, oh, we love you. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so powerful. Thank you. <laughs> so it was, it was, don't speak ill of the dead was a very safety and self-defense mechanism that got passed along the way. But yeah, so it was very bold for the Maori society to be like, no, who cares if they have supernatural powers? We're not going to honor them. They were bad. I love that. I absolutely love that. Honor their societies that, that um, well, well, I don't know if they, don't know if they, they dig their they dead, dead up, but but if, 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 if they do spend time with the dead after they've died. Yes, I cannot remember exactly off the top of my head, but um, I know in Indonesia, there's a culture that does that. It, it happens a lot of places all over the world, but um, Indonesia is probably one of the most famous places that it, where it happens. But again, it's just spending time because it's that it's that relic, especially if you have the bones there, it's really getting a connection with them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like scared of death nowadays in our society because they, again, it's the exposure. They never see it. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, mm -hmm. let's say mom dies, you call a company, a mortuary, you pay an exorbitant amount of money to have a bunch of strangers pick them up, put her in a freezer where you cannot see her, put special stage makeup on her so she doesn't look dead, present her under special lights in a chapel so she doesn't look dead, and then have a celebration of life ceremony to not even acknowledge the funeral. So we deny ourselves death. We don't see it happening. But if you live in a big city, people are dying by the thousands every day. But you don't see it because it's such a machinery of profit-producing mechanisms that we've developed. In the ancient days, the, the family, not even the ancient days, the early 1900s, the family took care of the bodies. You saw you saw what death was like. You handled mom's corpse. You washed her. You had that connection. And again, by not having that connection, not dealing with it, not seeing it, it becomes this boogeyman. Because the scariest things are always the things you don't see. Because they because they become even bigger and scarier as you imagine them. Absolutely. I'm, while you were talking, I was thinking about those uh, mortuaries in Puerto Rico. The ones one? that will, the, 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 the one that'll put the, uh, the person that died in, in whatever scene that the people want. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's very, 
very popular. Uh, it's very difficult to do. I mean, that's talent. That's talent. Um, but again, it's just the different ways of celebration. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> to have it more, I guess, more of a festival, more of a presentation of the person not in the line repose state, but just have them active and involved in what they were. And again, interaction with the corpse as if it was, you know, awake. It's still there. Hey, this is Joe. This is Juan and so forth. So it's, we don't, we would do it here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. if more people asked for it. It, it's again, you know, the whole thing, reason green burial and it, if you there's no way you can really be decompose naturally into the earth in the United States outside of certain states and certain companies just because no one's asking for it. So companies aren't going to offer it. But um, again, like in Puerto Rico, if you stay, if everyone wants it, we'll do it. There's so many things you can do with your body after death. And that's just one. Yeah, because I've seen the guy, you know, the, the the gentleman that liked to ride motorcycles, you know, they had him up on him. It must be hard, like you say, because, because I mean, the body isn't going to bend the same way. And, you know, they're not, it doesn't have the strength to sit up on its own. So they're, you guys have to, you know, put all kinds of rods and stuff going in there trying to, you know, keep the guy propped up. It's, it's a challenge. I, they, it's, it's a whole lot of, a whole lot of things involved in the embalming process and, yeah, it's it's a talent. If you see that, that is a work of art. That was a master that did that. And then I think about the photos from the eighteen hundreds and early in the early nineteen hundreds of people that that would take pictures of of their dead relatives. It's true because nowadays, with you know Instagram culture and phones on our you know, phones, like cameras on our phones, mm-hmm. you know, taking a picture is an everyday thing. Everyone always has a phone by them. But back then, you know, no one took your picture, and it took a long time. And it was super expensive. So you only really took one photo in your life if you were of average person. And it usually it's the same with us nowadays. You know, you never really do something until it's too late. So finally your child dies and it's like, you know, we should probably have a photo of this of our child to remember. And again, the family's dealing with the corpse. They're washing the baby's body. They're handling it. They're dressing it. So it's not ew. It's just, okay, look. Let's take a photo. It's just the next logical step. They didn't have that aversion to death because they see it every day and deal with it. Right, right, right. So what's another, um, we, talk, we talked about the Maoris. What's another society that, that has a unique take on, on death? Oh, all of them is so unique. One of the, one of the fascinating ones was um, the in Norse Viking society during the Viking age. Uh-huh. Um, they the afterlife belief for them was that it was technically bad if you died you went to what we would equate to as like a boring monotonous hell so dying was something not favored you couldn't like be a good person and go to a heaven you could only go to valhalla um if you died in battle or you died a warrior so it was this strange situation where if you're the best warrior that never lost a battle that probably meant you weren't going to valhalla because no you were never going to be killed in battle so what a lot of like the real, you know, the veterans, the aging Vikings would do is that on their deathbed, they would either commit suicide or they would harm themselves with like knives and axe wounds. So when they died, yeah. it would fool the Valkyries. Oh, this is an old battle wound. Yeah, this oh. happened from the battle. This is what I died from. I need to go to Valhalla. Oh, you know, oh, I got hit by an axe suddenly when I was dying. I need to go to heaven. So it was this weird last ditch effort. And it also helped explain why they were so aggressive in the raids, too, because 
if you can only die in battle, the more often you put yourself into battle situations, the more likely and more chances you can get into heaven. It is a very similar story with the Aztec society, except with Aztec society, they had two specialties that the Vikings didn't. One of them was for women because they acknowledged the women. They could be warriors. A woman could uh -huh. not fight in battle, but if a woman died in childbirth, that was giving birth to another warrior. That was helping the war effort, and that is how she died. So if a woman died in childbirth, she could go to their heaven. Uh -huh. And again, which just social political reasons of you need to have a lot of babies so you can keep on trying to, you know, die during childbirth. Right. So it does that too. But also they had a very unique thing where um, what about people who were born with, you know, mental retardations or they uh -huh. had some sort of physical deformity? People who could not be warriors just because of their birth circumstances. Aztec society says, well, if you were born such a way, you got an automatic pass into heaven. Nice. Of course, this is in the Christian heaven. You know, it's their nuance right. of it. But if you couldn't be a warrior, that's not your fault. So you automatically get a pass, which I thought was really nice for a society that was very brutal. But that um, is cool. Yeah, so that was very nice. Did you find any um, grotesque stuff? Oh you my know, god! That would happen after. <laughs> Do tell. Oh my god. <laughs> One of the things I was surprised that got um, into the book that I was certain was going to be cut was um, the ancient Egyptian ritual of letting bodies rot a little bit before Ew. they do the state. Yeah, before they do the sacred embalming ceremony. But it wasn't for everyone. It was only oh. for wealthy women of the aristocracy and beautiful women. Women regarded by society as you know ex exceptional beauties. They were made to rot. Why? Because it staved off the temptations of the embalmer. Um, okay. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people get worried nowadays. You know, I mean, you give you give mom to a bunch of strangers right now, and right? Not going to see her, and the dead never say no. So um, they, in ancient Egyptian, there was a mystical law. Not mystical, but there was spiritual laws passed where you could not. Beautiful women and women of the aristocracy got a pass of not having immediate spiritual rituals put upon them to allow their body to rot so that the families could feel safer that the embalmer was not going to do something untoward with their unresisting corpse. Okay. So it was that was fascinating. And it got into the book. So you know there's lots of other stuff in that book too. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And there's there's actual cases of stuff like that. I mean you look at like Eddie Jean, you know what he did, and and you know the, you see it all the time in the newspapers where and the, the the mortician or the embalmer, you know, took advantage. It is. I would say, having been in the industry, it is not as prevalent as like sensationalist news media will have you happen. Right. It's always some like I heard about someone who used to work with someone that used to work with mm -hmm. someone at this mortuary that knew someone. It's always kind of like that how you hear it, but um. No, but I would say, you know, you can, you don't need a mortuary. You don't need the funeral industry. You can legally take care of your own dead at home. And there's ways to preserve it. Do it. If you, if you want to be sure no one's messing with mom, uh -huh. have her stay at home. She doesn't have to be locked in a dark freezer with a bunch of strangers all day out of sight. But you, again, you have to be willing to confront the existential questions of death and handle her corpse. Can you do it? If so, then you have all the power. If not, you got to give that power to someone else. This is true. I've known people that have had wakes at their house. You yeah, know, with, I mean, with the bodies. 
it's very doable. It's just that people either don't know they can, don't know how, or like, ew, no. Yeah. Like, because those three, you, you, you know, you can do it. I have one more question for well, a couple, couple questions. This one would be, this is what I ask all, when I go out and do business stories on people. Uh-huh. You're standing on the strip in Las Vegas. There's a bunch of guys out there that have similar books to yours. How do you get people to come into your store to buy your books? Um, as like a showman on the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, if, if it's you're on the Strip, you got to be a spectacle. I mean, <laughs> there, Vegas already has such fantastic fabulousness of like, I'm competing with a, an Eiffel Tower, <laughs> giant fountains, neon lights. You got to pay attention to my little There you thing. go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know? You, I would have to make myself a spectacle. I would make myself outlandish. I would talk about it. I would try not to be a raving person. Right. Like, <laughs> Las Vegas trip. But I would definitely try to, um, I would try to be a spectacle because you have to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. And if I was in Las Vegas trip, that's what I would do. I would become a spectacle. So people would at least say, who the hell is that? What is he doing? What is he talking about? And then they'll look it up later on. Sure, sure, you sure. have to have you have to pique their interest and you have to get them to remember um what do you have coming up i have coming up the next book in the around the world magic series um uh-huh. january 2022 um warrior magic which again same thing around the world every history but it's focusing on war and military history and how social justice movements and protests and battles have been done. The gods of war, what's the magic that people have aided in, you know, on the front lines, you know, World War One, ancient skirmishes of, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and so forth. The same thing, but it's just focused on war and revolution and how magic and spirituality played a part. Now for pre-order, but coming out January, 2022. <laughs> awesome. How can people find you? Ooh. Type in my name, Tomas Prower, on social media, and you'll find me. Um, that's probably the easiest and best way. I have a website, www.tomasprower.com. So you can send me an email through there. But, or just probably Google my name. I'm sure I, like, I'll pop up easily. But, yeah, just say hi, and we'll connect. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your books? Um, get ready. They will change. You will never look at history and everything you were taught the same way again. Awesome. But it is a fascinating way to look at the world. And not only guys look at it, but finally see it. Finally see it. And enjoy. All right. If you don't mind, I'd like to have you on um, when you get your, your, your uh, new book out. Ooh, yes. That'd be fun. God, my lips don't want to work today. What's up with that? Sometimes it's just, you know, need a little grease there, you know, like the Tin Man. Trying to get things moving right. Yeah, I would love to have you on again to talk about your new book. Yeah, yeah, we'll make it happen. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on. I so appreciate it. And I enjoyed it. You're terrific to talk to. You're fun to talk to. And critics be damned, we did it. So, yeah. (laughs) What the hell with the elitist people on Goodreads? You know, did you enjoy the book? Did you learn something? That's all that matters. That's That's it. (laughs) That's it. I hear you. All right, well, thank you very much. And have a good evening, and I hope I hope the thunder slows down a little bit for you guys. I mean, it's still going right now. It's still I can hear it. I, I, I can hear it in the background. Yeah, from time to time. Yeah. See, I'm jealous because you have that. We have we still have overcast is what we got up here. So you're getting in front uh, of it. Who knows? All right. <laughs> All right, Tomas. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. 
All right. It was a pleasure. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. That was great. I learned so much with this show. That's the thing about this show is I learn a lot. It's, it's fun. It's fun to learn a lot. Anyway, I want to thank Tomas for coming on again. And at the end of the show, I'm going to tease his three books, and you guys will get to see where, where to get them. And his web, I'll also have his website posted. But uh, just to remind you, tomorrow we're on at the same we're on our regular time, and we're going to be talking to Ben Vanderheed about the Nomali Stones and their possible connections to ancient aliens. So that should be an interesting show tomorrow night. I, I have some photos of those stones that he shared with me that we can actually show you guys. Um, I want to thank you all for joining me, joining Tom, Tom, Tomas and I, actually. And remember, here we go with this. Here we, here's where I get to big you. Our numbers are good. You guys are doing a great job down, downloading this show. I'm really impressed with it. I want to do a call out to our, our fans in Pakistan and the Mideast because that was a surprise to have fans out there. And um, as you can see, i got a ticker crawling along the bottom of the screen. That's because, um, you know, this show is done out of pocket. California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is a nonprofit. So everything we do here um, comes out of my pocket. So what we do is we take those, the team does take donations at paypal.me at California Haunts. And, and what I do with that is I buy equipment for the team. And sometimes, you know, if, somebody, if we have to stay in a hotel and somebody can't afford it, I, you know, that helps pay for those expenses as well. So if you can find it in your heart to help us out a little bit, that would be great. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. Um, YouTube, another issue. YouTube, you need a certain amount of people to get your own URL, and uh, we don't have that amount yet. So when you try to find us on YouTube, it's virtually impossible. The best way to find us to get to become a subscriber on YouTube is to go to the website at www.CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and click on the video that's on there that'll take you to the YouTube site, and you can subscribe. The more subscribers we have, the better, because like I said, we can get a dedicated URL so people can go directly there, and all our archives are there. Anyway, I want to thank you guys, and I'm going to take a moment here, and I'm going to show... Uh, let me click over my other screen. I can click happy. And I'll show you where, where to contact Tomas and where to get his books. So here we go. Website, www.tomaspower.com. I don't know why my lips don't want to work today. There's Queer Magic. And there's the other two books that he's written, which I'm excited. In fact, I ordered my copies today. And they're, of course, available at Amazon. Again, I want to thank you guys for coming, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time.